You know that you know that you know that you know who you believed in. And you're fully persuaded. But you know, it is possible in the life of a believer to be attacked by Satan and to question the things that God has said are sure and unchangeable, is it not? In fact, God has spent much time throughout the Word of God, throughout His Word, (laughs) dealing with the issue of assurance of salvation. And this is one of the aspects of the armor that God has given us in our battle against Satan in our Christian life. I'm trying to find our text here this morning in Ephesians. I'm flipping all over the place here. Find your place in Ephesians chapter 6, where Brother Jim read for us. Ephesians chapter 6. And I've been uh, quoting for you 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, every Sunday morning. I pray that you would memorize this as well. You're saying, I can't keep up with all the memorization. Well, hey, just memorize what you can, would you? <laughs> just do what you can. Second Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6, we know the Bible says, For the, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of Christ and bringing every thought into the captivity, I'm sorry, and bringing every thought, yeah, into captivity uh, to the obedience of Christ. And that last verse, that last place there where it says, and having in a readiness, having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Our battle is not in the physical realm, it is in the spiritual realm. And I've said this before, that's a great That's great news, because if we had to fight the powers and principalities of Satan in this flesh, we would have no chance of survival, none whatsoever. We'd lose every time. We'd lose. Michael the archangel himself said that he durst not bring a railing accusation against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Michael. No, he's like one of the most powerful angels that there are, with some of the most authority of any angel that has been given, most likely. And he did not come up against Satan, and neither should we. So we have been looking, as you know, over the last few weeks, in our armor, in this spiritual warfare that we face as a child of God. I'm telling you, we're living in a day, as David said in the different context, and when he said, 10,000 have fallen at my right and 10,000 at thy left. Listen, we are living in a day when believer after believer after believer, it seems, is falling on the left and on the right, and they're, they're leaving, they're walking away, they're falling into sin. There are well-known preachers in prison this morning. There are some that have just fallen by the wayside and have just walked away. And don't ever think that it's not possible in your life or my life 
Don't ever come to that conclusion that we are that we are exempt from this. We are spiritual enough. We're holy enough. We're whatever you want to call yourself enough to escape the attacks of Satan. We are not good enough to get away from these things. And actually, according to the word of God, if we are living righteously in Christ Jesus, the more we endeavor to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and to obey our Heavenly Father, listen, we're going to be attacked. You can mark it down. We're going to be attacked. So we've looked at several elements of the armor, and today, though, we're going to look at this thing called the helmet. Verse 17, Ephesians 6, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, many of you have seen some photographs, some drawings of these helmets that the Roman soldiers would have worn in this first century that Paul was talking about. They, they would have had this metal helmet that they wore, and you've seen it. Um, actually, that helmet had evolved for, since, for about 600 years till, till the time that we see it here in the first century that Paul is uh, talking about. They, of course, whenever anybody goes to the battle, they know that the one thing you want to go to is take off the head. Listen, if your head's not on your shoulders, you're not, you're not going very far, friend. You're done. I remember Brother Bishop told me about a, a rattlesnake he chopped the head off of. And he said, I reached down and grabbed that tail, and that stub turned around and hit his hand still. He said, man, that scared me. There was no head on that thing. He said, but man, it's still, I, once I hit that boy, that thing reared up and still, still tried to strike. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? Yeah. But normally, <laughs> unless you're a chicken or a rattlesnake, you don't have much movement once that head's gone, right? And so... This helmet worn by the soldiers that Paul was using as an illustration for the helmet that God has given us was an, was an incredible piece of equipment that the Romans had in those, those early days. The societal class of the soldier was many times evident by the helmet he wore. The higher he was in his class, the better the helmet he had. If he was some little plebe that joined this Roman army, and sometimes their terms were 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. No four-year uh, no four uh, tenures and uh, re- redo at four or six years. Some of them obviously would be life. But the longer they were in, the more they went up to the ranks, the nicer the helmets they came. And, and when those that were coming in that were, that were at, the, at the peasant level may have had maybe just some sort of leather that they had concocted for themselves to get around their head to help a little bit. But many times it depicted where they were in their class in the military and maybe where they were in their class in society. They had nicer helmets. The upper class in in that society may have had a helmet made of metal and more specifically brass. Brass. It would have had ornate designs all over these helmets. If you look at some of them, they've dug some of them up and some of the work that has gone into these was incredible with these helmets. And on top of that helmet, most of you know this, this is what really stands out about the metal helmet were those plumes that were put on the top of the helmet and they would either be out of horsehair or sometimes they might be a a feather or something like that. But mainly they were this mohawk looking thing, you know, with horsehair. Sometimes it went along the the vertically along the helmet, sometimes it went horizontally along the helmet and those each had different distinctions and markings of what they represented. But the main reason for that big plume, you want to know what the main reason really was? 
to make them look taller, to make them look bigger against their enemy. It was a, 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 it was a strategy of fear against their enemy when they saw these helmets come in and they saw these plumes and they're like, whoa, they're way up there. Well, you know, my, my plume might have had a four-foot stick on it, you know what I mean? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. This was the Roman helmet. You've seen it. I don't need to go too much deeper into this helmet. You've probably seen photos of it. But Paul uses this to illustrate the Christian helmet. We have a helmet as well. And we have spiritual or not spiritual characteristics of our helmet. Our helmet is not physical. I just messed that up. Our helmet is spiritual, not physical. Let me say it that way. Okay, It's spiritual. It's a spiritual helmet. It protects the mind, not the physical brain. Your brain and your mind are two different things. <laughs> Let you think about that in your brain or mind, wherever that's going to. And like the Roman helmet, the Christian helmet has got to be put on. You know, the Romans never left without their helmet. They may not have wore it, worn it the whole time while they were in travel or just standing around in a non-battle situation, but it was at least always strapped to their side, and it was always ready to be taken and put on their head when the battle ensued. It, it, they were ready at all times with that helmet. And same with that Roman helmet. We, knew, we too have the choice whether we put on our helmet or whether we leave it off. It's up to us. But like the Roman helmet in some ways... Our helmet is constructed and provided by God. Now, some of these soldiers, the Roman, the Roman military, the government, many times didn't provide helmets. And if they did provide a helmet, it might not be much of one. So a lot of times these soldiers would, many times, would make their own helmets or they would have their helmets made by somebody. Well, our helmet, our Christian helmet, that guards our mind, has been constructed, and not just constructed, provided by God. We have a great governor, don't we? He doesn't say, oh, go, yeah, you need to protect that head if you're going to be successful, but, well, I hope you find out how to build a good one. No, God doesn't do that. He provides one for us, and He builds one for us. It always fits. And it's always made out of the right stuff. You ever seen a little kid put on maybe his dad or his big brother's helmet for the motorcycle? And that thing just is, his head is like a a, a marble inside of this helmet. It doesn't fit right. What's going to happen? It's not going to protect them. It might do more damage. Or you see one, a helmet that's too small. You ever have one? I had one of those. I couldn't even, I'd have to take my glasses off and be like, and I'd be like, like this whole, and I couldn't get my glasses in. I look like a, Got my face stuck between the school bus doors when they shut too early, you know. And uh, it's, no, that's not very that's not very good either. It's too, you know, makes you pass out. Actually, your eyeballs are bugged out, and your head's all you're not. There's no blood up in your head. Your carotid arteries are cut off. And no, God's helmet fits. Isn't that nice? It fits really well. And it listen, it always works. It always works. Whatever the strike comes, whatever the dart that gets thrown, whatever the arrow that gets released, wherever that sword comes down, listen, God's helmet always works. Don't gloss over this point. Don't miss this. God's ways, God's provisions, the way God does things and what He provides, they always work when 
they are used. Always. The problem lies is when either we neglect to pick them up and put it on, or when we really don't believe that they work. No, that's, that's when the problem comes in. But listen, when we believe that they work, and we know that they work, we're convinced that they work, when we put them on and when we use what God has for us, victory every single time. Every time. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you know this verse. There hath no temptation taken you, but that such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And some people have said, well, hey, I know that verse is true, but it just just hasn't worked for me. I have fallen into temptation, I have come into temptation, I have given into temptation, and that verse didn't work. Notice what he says at the end of that, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You know why that verse doesn't work? Because many times we don't seek the escape. (laughs) You know, that verse always works when you actually want the escape. And you're looking for the escape. He said, God says, you'll be able to bear it. What God gives us, listen, it works. I can't say it enough. It works, it works, and it works. The the believer's helmet is spiritual. It protects the mind. It has to be put on. And it is made by God, and it always works. But next, I want to look at the helmet's construction. We know that we have a helmet. It says right here in our text, take the helmet, Paul says. Take it. That's what you have to do. But it always works. And the construction of this helmet. Well, the better helmets of the Roman army, the best ones you could get, were made out of brass. They were heavy, they were strong. And then they had to have this piece that would come off the back and it would cover the back of the neck and kind of wrap around. Then they had sides that came down this helmet that came down over the sides of the face, the cheekbone, came down around the chin. Pretty much the only thing that was visible with that helmet would have been your eyeballs and your nose and mouth. And you'd have to be a pretty good shot to get in there. Goliath found out God's a really good shot. (laughs) So, what's the Christian's helmet made of? We know it's impenetrable. We know it works. But what has God made His helmet out of? His helmet out of. Well... Look at here in our text. And the taken to you the helmet of salvation. We know this helmet's spiritual and not material. The helmet God made to protect our mind is not a helmet of brass, but a helmet of salvation. Salvation. This is what it says. Here it is in the text. Salvation. Now, I want to make a couple observations and with a, few, with a, with a question. Here's a couple of my observations. I have to put my helmet on. We already established this. God won't do it for me. But if our helmet is salvation, and it is God who saves me, how do I put something on that God has done to me? You following that question? When it comes down to just where the rubber meets the road, how do I do this? I know there's a helmet. I know God has saved me. I know that helmet is the material God has used as, is salvation. How do I get the thing on? Right? Yeah. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 is a 
cross-reference, I guess you could call it, to Ephesians 5.17, or 6.17. And Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and he said this, Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Here he is talking about armor again, and listen to this. And for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, he didn't just call this helmet here salvation. He called it the hope of salvation. So what is this? Notice that he calls it the hope of salvation, but what is hope? We dealt with this just a, a maybe a week or two ago. The definition of what hope is. Hope is not like, oh, I hope this works. Like we do a lot of times when we have tried to fix something on a car. You ever done that? I've got a diesel right now. That is going, I'm going after little part, after little part, after little part, after little part. And every time I do whatever sensor that somebody online that I read about tells me could be the problem for this, and you go and you buy the little sensor and you go, oh, I hope this works. Start that thing up, get down the road. Have really bad thoughts about your truck and the guy who wrote whatever it was online. Wait for a little while. Hope it starts again. (laughs) Hope, hope, hope. That's a different hope. I hope this works. I hope this doesn't hurt. (laughs) I did a lot of those as a kid. Oh, I hope this doesn't hurt. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) No, just jump. It's okay. Yeah, we'll see. We used to go to Jenkins to swim. We'd go jump off the bridge down to Jenkins. Yeah, you know where Jenkins is. Jump off that bridge. Dad would tell me, don't ever jump off that thing after a rain because you never know where the sand and the rocks have shifted, you know. When it gets high. Well, we were jumping off, just happy as, happy as a clam, you know, jumping off there. And a friend of ours, he was, this kid was about six foot something. And we're like, oh, come on. We were all like 417. And we're like, come on, it's fine. And he, man, he leaps off that thing, comes into the water, jumps back out of the water. I hit bottom! <laughs> you know? Oh, he hit it too. <laughs> yeah, hope this didn't hurt. <laughs> no, this is what our salvation is. I hope I don't hit. Right? I hope it works. I hope I make it there. Have you heard people say that? We were at a funeral one time, or a relative, Pentecostal relative, and uh, uh, years ago, and in the, in the, during the time that her preacher said this, and we hope the Lord receives her. But wow. No hope in that, is there? What is the hope of salvation? The hope means a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Joyful... A joyful and confident expectation. You know what that it says? I know who I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That is the hope that Paul is talking about here, which is our helmet of salvation. It is our helmet of the hope of salvation, the confident expectation. Now remember this, each piece of the armor reveals two things. It reveals, number one, an attitude or an action in how we are to respond to the enemy's attacks. But number two, it it reveals to us the way the enemy attacks. Now watch this. I'm going to build up to this. I'm going to bring this all together here in a second. Satan attacks truth. He attacks our heart. He attacks the gospel in our ability to propagate the gospel. He attacks our faith and our trust in the shield of faith. So the helmet of salvation re- represents the fact that Satan attacks our mind. Yes, it's a, it is covering our mind. And for the believer, the helmet represents how we are to respond to Satan's attack on our mind. So here it is. The, helmet of, the helmet's construction is salvation. The hope of our salvation 
Because Satan loves to attack our mind and cause us to question our salvation. Would somebody saved do that? Wow, I thought you were saved. You'd say that? Whoa, you, you've been doing this? Wait, you said this prayer but not that prayer? Oh, wait, you, you said you prayed to God but not Jesus? Wait, you... No, have, have you heard these? Have they, have they run through your own mind at times? Yeah. One, you know, one way for Satan to get into a believer to leave the battlefield is to cause them to question their security in Christ. And you see what the helmet of salvation here is? The helmet of the hope of salvation is? It is that protective measure. Our, our joy and expectation that what God says about us is still true. And when Satan attacks us, and he attacks our mind, and he attacks your, your, your confidence in your salvation, we must be ready to put on that helmet of what God says and, re- and respond back to him, No, God said this, and I'm secure. That's what we do. That's what the helmet does. It is our hope of salvation. So if Satan can get you to doubt your salvation, can I tell you what? You're no threat on the battlefield. You'll be so consumed with that aspect of your life that I'm telling you, you'll be of little value on the, ba- on the battlefield. So what does God give us? What is, this hope, what is this hope of salvation, this helmet of salvation? What has God given us that we are to put on our head to remember? Well, I'm going to give us seven evidences. You're like, in 15 minutes? Nope. Seven evidences. For the hope of the believer. I hope you write these down. We need them. If you don't have a pen, we record them and you can get a copy. Of all of the things that God could have recorded for us, the fact that so much time was given to assuage doubt and fear reveals a couple things. Number one, it reveals that doubt and fear are real and they're probable. You're going to have some fear in your life, on your, in, in your relationship with Christ, and you're going to have some doubt in your life at times in your relationship with Christ. Hey, John the Baptist sent a couple disciples to Jesus. After all that he had seen, after the very words that came out of his mouth, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. After he saw the miracles, he saw what Jesus had done, he sent a couple disciples and said, Would you find out if this is the one or if we should ask for another? Yeah. And you're better? You know what Jesus said? There's none born greater than John the Baptist. You know what that means? We're going to have struggles in our life. We're going to doubt some things that God has said about us. We'll even doubt our salvation at times. Yes, we will. So doubt is real and probable, and God's desire is that we have confidence. Isn't that wonderful? God doesn't want us defeated in our doubts and fears. You know when most doubt, you know what I found out when most doubt comes in my life, most struggles come in my life? You know what I've learned? There's some underlying sin there that I haven't dealt with. And it will, listen, it is an open wedge in our life that Satan will use every time. If you're going to have victory in your life over the world, the flesh, and the devil, you must, you must have a rock-solid confidence that you have been 
born again. And it's seen it's, it is God's desire that you know this. I think we ought to spend a little bit more time with the truth of God's word revealing our salvation. So number, the first thing I want to notice though, not everyone who says they are saved are saved. We got to get this out of the road real, real quick, real quick. Oh, real quick here. Boy, that was tough to say. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, the, Jesus said, Not everyone that, that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me, Jesus said in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful uh, works in thy name? He said, Have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Did you hear that? Prophesy. I've preached. That's what New Testament prophecy is. Preaching. I have preached the word of God. I have preached the gospel in your name. Do you know preachers have gotten saved? Absolutely they have. So they, some, were, some are going to come to Jesus saying, I preached in your name. I, 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 I cast out devils. What? I cast out devils. I've done many wonderful works. And Jesus said, then I'll profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. What we don't know about these individuals is their heart. And God did. We don't know why they did what they did. We don't know what their motives were or anything else. But just because someone has prayed a prayer and walked down an aisle and shed some, some tears, it doesn't mean that they are saved. That is not it. There are many reasons why people supposedly get saved. Some people are just, frankly, afraid to die. I remember at eight years old, they were predicting among many times, one of the times of the end of the world, and I remember having such fear of what that was. At eight years old, I was in a church. I don't remember the gospel. I don't remember preaching. I don't re- I'd never had conviction in my life. The first time I had ever experienced the conviction of the Spirit of God was when I was 17 years old at a summer camp uh, that I went with a church. At eight years old, no conviction. Fear of dying. Fear of the end of the world. Fear of the unknown. You know what I did? Somebody asked me, do you need to get saved? Yes, I need to be saved. Prayed a prayer. Meant nothing. Meant nothing. Don't be so quick to push a child into saying a prayer. Do children get saved? Absolutely. Absolutely they do. But be careful with them. Be careful with them. Sometimes it's just afraid to die. Sometimes it's to get a husband and a wife off your back. <laughs> you ever seen those? You know they're not here to be here. They're just wanting to keep somebody from yapping at them. Maybe it's just to get out of trouble. Maybe they got their life into a heap of trouble and they find religion and this is going to fix it. No, but they, they found religion but not Jesus. And so none of these mean that a person has come to Christ in honesty and humility. They don't. And the reason we come to Christ for salvation is very clear in the Word of God. Number one, God has been drawing us. Do you remember when you begin to battle with the idea of your eternal salvation and your position with God and your sin against God and who you were in this emptiness and this void that was in your life that you couldn't figure out how to fix it and how to to fill that void? Do you remember that time in your life? Do you remember after the, maybe the preaching of the Word of God, maybe after a Sunday school lesson, maybe after somebody gave you a tract, whatever it was, the Word of God got into your ear and got into your mind, and you begin to question and wonder what this all meant, and something began to draw you, draw you. You know what that's called? The conviction of the Spirit of God. 
In John 6, 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Nobody wakes up and turns over a new leaf and says, Well, I'm going to be a Christian today. And they start going to church and come down the aisle and get baptized. No. If there is no drawing of the Spirit of God and the convicting of the Spirit of God, there is no salvation. Number two, God's drawing is the purpose is for the purpose to reveal that you're a sinner and at odds with God. That's why He draws you. Because we are born in this world not thinking that a thing is wrong with us. Nothing's wrong with me. I'm good. I'm fine. And what God does, His Spirit comes along and says, no, there's something wrong. And listen, it may not be some grave sin in your life. It may not be something that you're going, oh, I've done this and that. It may not be that at all. Many times, you know what it is? There's just something you can't put your finger on. You know something is wrong in my life and I can't figure it out. And ever since that tract, ever since that Sunday school lesson, ever since that preacher, I can't shake it. That's the Spirit of God. Rejoice in that. He's drawing you. Do you remember when that happened in your life? His purpose is to reveal that you're at odds with Him. John 16, 8, the Bible says, And when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But once you are convinced that you are in trouble with God, there is only one thing to do, get saved. That's it. you got to get saved. How? Repent. What does that mean? Change your mind. The day I repented, you know what happened in my mind? I finally said this. No, you're right. I'm lost. You're right. I'm wrong. That's essentially what, what repentance is. But true Bible repentance is going to mean that something is going to change in your life. What are you going to do? If you, if you believe now God is right and you're wrong, now you're going to do what God says. And you're going to believe that Jesus is the very Son of God. He is God. You're going to believe that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you and only His blood can wash away sins. You are going to believe that uh, if you go directly to God in prayer and you confess that you're a sinner and, and, and that you are an offense to Him, and you ask Him to forgive you, and you ask Him to save you, He's going to do it. No, that's Bible salvation. It's a relationship. Just like anybody else you offend, you know what you do? You go to Him, and you get it settled. And that's what we do with our Heavenly Father. That's what we do with God. And He'll do it. John six thirty seven. And the Father, and all that the Father giveth me shall, shall come to me, Jesus said. And him that cometh to me, I like this, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus will never say no. Never. Why? It was his plan. It was his desire. It's his love. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Romans ten thirteen. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not everyone who says they're saved are saved. There's a Bible way of salvation. And there's only one way to the Father through Jesus Christ. So what are the evidences for those today, that this morning, that say, you know what, I know I'm born again. I remember the day that I came to Christ. I remember the day I repented and put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, asking Him to save me. I remember that day. I've never forgot it. You might forget the actual date and the actual time on the clock, but you've never forgot it. So what are the evidences that God gives for security? You're like, I was waiting for these 10 minutes ago. (laughs) In 1 John 5.13, the Bible says, why don't you turn to 1 John? We're going to be in there quite a bit. 
Just turn about. Let's turn over there, would you? First John. God gives evidences to the believer. That we are saved. He gives us evidences. These evidences are twofold. Listen, listen to this. They're twofold. Not only do they act as an anchor to the believer, but these evidences are also a condemnation to the lost. The thing that anchors the believer is a judgment and a re- re- revelation to the lost that they're not in Christ. 1 John 5.13, the Bible says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So it's clearly God's desire that we know we have eternal life. So let's look at some of these evidences. The first evidence, number one, the first evidence that you are a child of God is the evidence of obedience. Obedience. You can turn over to 1 John 2, 3 through 5. I'm going to read it for you. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keepeth His word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. Listen, Works are not in evidence. Works are not a way to get to God. Works are not a way to get to God, but works can be an evidence that we're not in God. That makes sense to you? No, you're not going to work your way there, but we work, we work our way from our salvation, not to our salvation. We work because we're saved, not to get saved. So in the life of a believer, the, 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 let me say this, the, um, Works in an unbeliever is not, is not evidence of salvation, but a lack of works in a, quote, believer is an evidence of no salvation, that they're not true, that they're not in Christ. Obedience. Obedience. Do you have a desire to obey God? Do you have a desire to obey God? I didn't ask if you obeyed Him all the time, but is there a desire to please Him? In John 8, 30 and 32, the Bible says, And he spake these words, many believed on him. As he spake these words, I'm sorry, many believed on him. Then said Jesus unto those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments. And we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. No, this is the evidence of a person that, is, that has been indwelt by the Spirit of God, that has been born again and saved. You will have a desire to please and obey God. It's a heart obedience. Not just stuff. It's a desire. Number two, you're going to have a love for Christians. Uh-oh. 1 John 3, 13 through 15, the Bible says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't get surprised about that one. We know that we have passed from death unto life. How? Because we love the brethren. Can we get more plain than that in this verse? He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. If you are abiding in death, that means life is not abiding in you. You're not saved. 
And whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Do you love being with Christians? Have the friends of the old life fallen away? Let me ask you this. If you had a choice between... (laughs) Ouch. A movie... You know, people fall in love with actors and actresses. They actually, pers- there, there's a, like a second personification. Like they become like disintertwined with these people. Like they really exist. It's like, no, that's fake. I, I love saying, yeah, that was in the script. When somebody goes, why would they do that? It was in the script. Don't get too excited. It was written in there. <laughs> if you knew these people, they probably wouldn't like you. But if you had a choice between a movie or a TV program or a church, Which one would you choose? No, that's a valid question. Do you not think a lot of these things that we place our life into are connected to relationships? No, people have relationships with that person on the screen. They do. They they love their character and they, they end up having a relationship. And many times they're godless. And if they were godly and the film were godly and the entertainment was a godly uh, the thing that glorifies God and there are movies and entertainment and TV that, that Christians make that glorify God, they may not be our stripe, but they glorify God. You know what you do when you get in the middle of one of those and church comes up? It's real easy to shut it off and go to church. Why? Because they're motivating you to godliness anyway. <laughs> yeah. Your love for the brethren... In Romans 5, 5, it's speaking of those who have been born again, and it says this, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. God's love has been given unto us. It's a supernatural thing that God gives us. And if the supernatural of God, of uh, love of God, if the supernatural love of God, given at salvation, is present in your life, you are going to love other Christians, and you're going to prefer their company. Does it mean you're going to get along with all of them? No. Why? Because we're all weirdos. We all have issues. We all have quirks. We all have these weird idiosyncrasies that some get along with and some don't. You know what we do? We find other Christians that are just as weird as us. And we end up having a great time together, right? But even those that are not. You have a time of fellowship. We have a a feed after church sometimes. And there's nothing greater than getting together with the people of God. I love it. And if Christ is in you, you'll love it as well. This is an evidence of salvation. If you feel that you have more in common and are more at ease with lost folk, it could be because you're not saved. But the reverse of that, believer, we have a love for the lost that they come to Christ, but we have a love for the brethren. We prefer them. We understand them. What is it? That's the supernatural love that God has put in us to have for them. That's an evidence of salvation. Do you have that love? Do you have that love for the brethren? Number three, doctrine. There are many cults out there today, and they they may all say the same words we say. They may have the same experiences we do, but there's one thing missing. It's in their belief in who Jesus is. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They say that Jesus is not God. Talk to one this week. Is Jesus God? Well, no. He's not God. Well, then who is He? Well, if He's just a man, how can He save? Oh, 
Well, if he became a god, you think you're going to become a god? They do. The Mormons believe that. Yeah. They believe, no, they believe that Jesus was the product of the father having a marital relationship with one of his wives in heaven, and they had Jesus and Satan, whom are brothers, and Jesus was the one who came to this earth, who was obedient to his father, who became a god, and all of his offspring are going to become gods also. Yeah. No, that's a cult. C-U-L-T, cult. That's a cult. Doctrine. Doctrine. First John in chapter 4. Hereby we know that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. If you can stand here this morning and you say, Boy, I have real trouble in believing that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. That Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. That Jesus is God. I have real trouble believing that. Friend, you've never been born again. And today you can be saved. Today you can come to Christ. Because He is very God. This verse in verse John 4. Notice what is being confessed to the believer. Number one, Jesus. That's His humanity. 100% man. Notice secondly what's being confessed. Son of God. His deity. He is the Son of God. He is God Himself. Many will profess His humanity. Many will profess His humanity, but none of them, the cults, none of the cults will profess His deity. And listen, this isn't just some battle of who's right or who's wrong. What the bat, where the battle lies is that these people are going to hell to a Christless eternity, and they need the truth. And if we love them, we'll give them the truth. No, we should have. We should have not only just an urgency, but 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 this this aching desire, knowing where their condemnation lies and where they're headed, to see that they have the truth. It's not just I'm right and you're wrong. Ha! Not that's not it at all. The, the, there are dire uh, circumstances involved here that that are going to happen if they reject Christ and they need the truth. Listen, if you have trouble with who Jesus is. Maybe because you're not saved. It might be that. Listen to Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees in Matthew 23. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Who is he? He says, Whose son is he? And they say unto him, Listen to what the Pharisees said, The son of David. That's what they said. He saith unto them, Jesus challenged them. I love this. Uh, he went on to. <laughs> He went on to say, how, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110, I believe, in verse 1. And Jesus goes on to say, if David then called him Lord, how is he his son? <laughs> and, and no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Okay. We'll just move along. Don't ask that guy anything. I, I love it. Okay, I'm enjoying this. I'm sorry, okay? This is great. Uh, this is awesome. I love it. So to the Pharisees, he was only a man. He was only the son of David. They rejected his deity, and so much so they rejected the deity that they crucified him. And they took up stones at one time because he made himself, they said, to be like God. Let me ask you this. What think ye of Christ? Do you believe Jesus is very God? The Son of God? Amen. Amen.
that is a good place to say amen, you know. Number four, not loving the world. We're almost done here. No, we're not. What am I saying? <laughs> Number four. You're like, four, seven? Man, we got a long way to go. Number four, 1 John 2, 15 through 16. John says, love not the world, neither the things that are, in, that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Are you more apt to be swayed by the opinions and the philosophies of the world or the Word of God? When a decision needs to be made and you have God's will and God in and, and, and the world's will, God's will on this hand and the world's will on this hand, which one are you more ready to go to and to obey? You know the Bible the Bible gives us a way to handle our money. Who do you listen to? The Bible gives us a way to raise a family. Who do you listen to? The Bible gives us a way of, of what should be a priority in our life and what things uh, should, be, should be first in our life. Who gets your priority? God, God gives us a way how to dress and how to eat and how to spend our money and on that. Listen, God gives us a, a will for every aspect of our life. And when decisions in life come upon you, who do you go to? No, no, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that you can be, uh, uh, drawn away by your flesh to something of the world that, and you find yourself going a direction that is against the will of God and, and, and be, be uh, and then you realize someday, oh, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. Go back to the Word of God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the, the, this is the individual that says you give them the Word of God and you give them the world's philosophy and they go, I don't want God's, I don't want that. You quote the Bible to them and they're like, Ugh. no, they tense up. They don't want to know the will of God. You know what that's an evidence of? They love the world. And you know what loving the world is an evidence of? That they don't have the Spirit dwelling in them. They're not saved. You know, we struggle. In the, listen, none of these mean perfection in our life. All of these are, have to do with the desire of our heart in which way we'd rather go if our flesh was taken out of the equation and we were free like we'll be someday. This flesh will be gone. But if we had that decision right now, if we could do it now, we'd take that flesh out of the way and we'd just, we'd go for God on every aspect. Everything He ever said, we'd obey it immediately. No, that's our heart. That's our heart. The individual who's not saved, that's not their heart. That's not their heart at all. A true believer filled with the Spirit of God will not love the world. Many times they hate the world. Hate what the world has done. Hate the effect it still has on them and the pull it still has on them. One of the saddest verses, I think, in the Bible were in 2 Timothy 4.10 when Paul said, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed unto Thessalonica. Demas, he was mentioned two other times. He was a helper to Paul. He went on missionary journeys with Paul. And he loved the world more than he loved God. You know what it was? It was an evidence of what was in Demas's heart. It came to fruition. Number five, decreasing sin. Decreasing sin. Listen, not sinless, but sinning less. <laughs> Did you get that? Not sinless. None of us are sinless. We'll never will be in this flesh. But sinning less. First John 3, verses 5 through 9. We're there. Look at First John chapter 3. Listen to verses 5 through 9. And you know that He was manifest to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. 
There's no sin in Jesus. There never was. Not that he never sinned, but that Jesus was never a sinner. Hallelujah. (laughs) He couldn't sin. Verse 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither knoweth him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. He cannot sin, because he is born of God. So verse 6 gives us two states of being. B-E-I-N-G. That's so hard to say. Being. Number one. The first state of being is the one who abides in Him. That's the state of being. We're in Christ. The second state of being is those who abide outside of Him. Hath not seen Him, neither knoweth Him. You know what that know is? That is the same relational word as Adam knew Eve and conceived. That's, our Lord, that's a word of relation. And so there's two states of being here in 1 John. One who is in Christ and one who is outside of Christ. One who abides in Him and one who abides outside of Him. In verse 7 He goes on to say, righteous people do righteousness. Righteous people do righteousness. Why? Because right being, if you're abiding in Christ, right being brings about right doing. It's natural. Because why? It's part of the fruit of the tree. Why? We are bearing fruit. It is produced from within. God is doing that. And in verse 8, it talks about committing sin. This also is a state of being. You have a lifestyle of sin. That's just what your lifestyle is. You're outside of Christ. You know, the new man cannot sin. He goes on to say in verse 9, because God who cannot sin now lives in the believer. And our record before the the courts of heaven in front of the throne of God, our record is now the record of Jesus Christ who was never a sinner. And according to God and His record, we can't sin. The old Listen, the old man was sin, but God has made a new creature, create, a new creature, new creation or a new creature, And what sins now is just our flesh. Our flesh sins. And we give in to the flesh at times. Our will gives in to the flesh. We believe the lies and the temptation of the flesh. Listen, if a a true Christian had one desire given to them by God, here's their desire. They would never sin again. You ever thought about it? You ever had that thought? If I could have anything in the world as a believer... If God says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you right now. If I could live the rest of my days and never again commit one sin, I would be the happiest person on the planet. No, that's the desire of my heart. It's the desire of my heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, behold, all things are become new. Even though a Christian may give in to the desires of the flesh at times and sin, that heart of the Christian has changed. And their true desire is to never sin. What about you? You ever even think about that? Number six, persecution for righteousness. We're coming to the end here. This is not persecution for our own dumb decisions. This is not persecution because, you know, we made really bad choices. And now we're just paying for them. We, we're reaping what we have sown. This is the persecution that comes from standing for God and choosing righteousness over sin. 
Look at First John, we're in chapter 3, look at verses 12 and 13. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, that the world hate you. Abel was killed by Cain because Abel chose to obey God and Cain didn't want to. So Cain got irritated and killed him. You know what a lot of the opposition you have in your life is from from unbelievers? Like somebody I think so well said? Because many times we're a mirror. When you live righteously in Christ Jesus, many times you become a mirror and a condemnation to somebody else's life. And a lot of times they end up attacking the mirror and not what the real problem is. Matthew 5.10, Jesus said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to dig into this real quick, because this is, this is great right here. I don't want us to pass this. The kingdom of heaven is the summation of the saved. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they're synonymous, the same thing. I know some take a little different view on that, and that's fine. About a future and present and future tense, that's fine, that's okay. But the kingdom of heaven is the summation of all of the saved people. Everyone who is born again to the Spirit of God, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, is a part of the kingdom of God. Not everybody is part of the church. This is where confusion lies with what a true church is, what the New Testament church is. A church is an ecclesia. It's local, it's visible, it's autonomous, but it's local and it's visible. The kingdom is universal and invisible. Everybody who is saved is a part of the kingdom. Okay, Not everyone who is saved is a part of one of the churches that Jesus started. Jesus didn't start the Roman Catholic Church. Jesus didn't start any of the offshoots off the Roman Catholic Church. Jesus started his church before Pentecost, and he said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus' church, he began with the, by gathering up those disciples that had been baptized by John. He started with a baptized, regenerate church membership, and that church still exists today. Hallelujah. It's here. Yep. The church is visible. It's separate from the kingdom. So the churches are summations of those who have been saved in that local area and have joined themselves together. That, that's what the church is. Not all, listen, not all of the saved people are in a church that Jesus built, but all of the saved are in the kingdom. Okay? That's why, listen, this is another clarification. The Bible never says, never says that Jesus is coming, coming back for his bride. Ooh. I've heard that for so, yeah. You've heard a lot of, you've heard a lot of, uh, reformed, reformed theology preach that on the radio. The Bible says he's coming back for his saints. Because if he were just coming back for the bride, which is the, the one of the three metaphors Jesus uses for his church, a building, a bride, and a body, if he was just coming back for his church, there are many unsaved people that would not go up in the up in the rapture. But he doesn't say that. He said he's coming back for the saints. Everyone who's been born again is going up. So not all of the saved are in the church that be Jesus built, but everybody who is saved is a part of the kingdom of God. Now Luke 17, 21 says, Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. You hear that? It's in you. So if you're saved here today, you're a part of the kingdom of God. Now, now watch the connection. I'm bringing it together here. Jesus is saying that those that are in the kingdom, saved people, will be persecuted. Why? Because they're saved. 
persecution comes to those who are in Christ Jesus, those that are in the kingdom, and only, only those who are saved are in the kingdom. Let me ask you, have you, been, have you been persecuted for righteousness' sake? Have you been persecuted just because you've chosen God? Maybe on the job site you've taken some stands, and oh, you never cease to hear the end of it. Yeah. It's a sign that you're saved. One of the evidences of your salvation. No, God wants you to be sure, and He wants you to have victory in your mind over the attacks of Satan. And one of those evidences is a persecution for righteousness' sake. And the last one, perseverance. 1 John 2.19, the Bible says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Perseverance. John was writing about the church at Ephesus and those who left the church and went into Gnosticism. No, they left the truth and went to error. You see these things, I've seen them on the internet, these things called YouTube, why I left the Baptist church, why I left Christianity, why I joined Mormonism, why I joined... You were never born again of the Spirit of God because somebody who is born again of the Spirit of God doesn't leave. <laughs> it's not possible. You say, well, my child did this, and they used to do this, and, and they made this profession and that profession, but yeah, I know they deny Christ today, but no, they were never saved. And you need to beg that God saves them before it's too late. Yep. Perseverance. Not, not Calvinistic perseverance of the saints, meaning keeping yourself saved. <laughs> Real perseverance. If we, and listen, if the Spirit of God is in you, you'll continue. You'll continue. Obedience. Love for, Christ, love for Christians. Doctrine. Decreasing sin. Not loving the world. Persecution for righteousness and perseverance. Seven evidences that we need to, we need to fill our mind with, which God calls our helmet of salvation against the onslaughts of Satan. I think God wants us to have assurance, don't you? I think God wants us to be secure in our salvation, don't you? Do you? Yeah. Have you gone out? Are we too long this morning? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are just some of the evidences. And you know what? If you're going to get maintained victory in your life, winning battles and not losing battles... Your mind has got to be protected. It has to be protected. You've got to know that you're saved. You've got to know that your salvation is eternal. And as we look over the list of evidences, would you be convicted of being a Christian? If you were brought before a court of law and they listed, they they laid out all of these seven evidences and they examined your life and you were able to examine your heart and put them out there, Would you be convicted? If you're saved here this morning, you know you're saved. God has given us this protection over our mind that we know that we're saved. And when Satan attacks, we can go right back at him with this. We could even look in our own life, in our own pattern of life, 
and say, no, according to the word of God, according to what he says, I have been born again by the spirit of God and I am saved today. What about you? Do you have those evidences? Are they in your life? Father, I want to thank you this morning. There's a lot here this morning. But this is pretty important. Father, there may be one that is here today that looks over all of these evidences and go, you know what, I don't see any of them. And maybe right now your spirit is convicting their hearts and drawing them to repentance. And I pray that they would respond today. And Father, for the one here, the believer today that has been assured of their salvation, I pray today that they'd gain greater confidence and have greater victories in battles than they've ever had. We thank you for how you equip us. Father, would you do your work in your invitation that your people would respond? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand this morning? As the piano plays, I want to just ask you, Christian, if you've been battling Satan in, in, in the area of your, of your salvation, the security of your salvation, and you know God has saved you, maybe would you come this morning and get alone with God and just thank Him for the evidences in your life that you might just get a little more, nail them down just a little more this morning. It may not be great trials. Of, oh, I don't know. I just maybe Satan has just been attacking you. Hello, he's going to attack you. It's not like you're a weak Christian. Oh, you're a you're a weak. You're you're a no 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 good Christian. You got attacked. No, we actually, you know what the evidences of the attacking are? That you're probably walking closer to Christ because he attacks those that are walking closer. You're more of a threat. And if Satan has been getting a hold of your mind. I'd ask you that you'd come today and get that. Just spend some time with the Lord this morning and get those things nailed down. As the piano plays, some have come. You come this morning and deal with some of these issues and things in your life and get them nailed down. I want to talk next, though, to those that are unsaved. Is there anybody in here this morning that might be able to say, you know what, I want to be honest with you, I don't have any of these evidences in my life. And when you go through them, I, I just have this horrible heaviness on my soul, on my heart, this drawing, and I, I just, I don't know what it is. Maybe if that's you this morning, could you maybe just raise your hand quickly and say, I just, I don't know. I'm having trouble being convinced that I'm a child of God. Would you do that this morning? Could you raise your hand to that effect? Yeah. If you had come this morning... We have people that can take you into another room and another private place with the Word of God and they can show you beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can know that you have eternal life. If you'd like to visit that this morning, you may come even now or you can come get me later. But here's the thing. You don't have to get saved here in church this morning, but you must get saved when God is drawing you. You must respond when He is drawing so as the piano plays, maybe you need to come now. I'll meet you down front and 
we can get somebody and we can show you how you can know for certain that you're going to heaven. Would you come this morning? If you need to be saved, you come. Don't put it off. Hell is real. For who knows what may be in the morrow? For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and vanished away. You have, you have no assurance of tomorrow. None whatsoever. You need to be saved. Christians, you need to pray for those that God would bind Satan, that those that are struggling in their salvation today, whether they're even saved or not, that God would bind Satan and that they would respond to him.